But one of the good practices I hope and believe of the preaching pastor is to let the weight and the frequency of the topics in Scripture really determine the weight and frequency of preaching on that topic. This is the usefulness and the practicality of verse-by-verse exposition that the text then determines the subject matter. But there is a, a short list of subjects in which the preacher is absolutely safe preaching and explaining and reminding as often as possible topics that will never be exhausted, which we always need to hear, which will always edify our hearts. And one of those topics is love. I'm preaching on love the last Sunday of this year. I'm preaching on love at our all-church retreat in January, and I'm preaching on love tonight, and I do so unashamedly. Jesus told the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, verse 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine that the greatest law of God is to love God completely, but there's a second like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In Mark chapter 12, a scribe told Jesus to love God with all the heart and with all understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus told him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul taught in Romans 13, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul taught the Galatian churches in Galatians 5.14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. James, taught in James 2 verse 8, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. All totaled, the New Testament quotes or cites, you shall love your neighbor as yourself nine times. The original text for you shall love the neighbor, your neighbor as yourself is found in our text tonight, Leviticus 19. Now, the Apostle John, of course, he picked up on the theme of love. He speaks of love 116 times in his five books in the New Testament that he penned. In fact, he's very blunt. He tells us in, as the church in 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so he makes love for one another the litmus test for salvation. In our flesh, though, how our attitudes tend toward being unloving, how we tend toward unloving words, unloving heartless actions, it is our flesh which continues to push us toward lack of love, It's no wonder that the Apostle Paul brings up love 115 times in his letters. He missed John's record by just one. And I wonder if they compared notes in heaven and Paul was like, boy, just two more and I would have beat you out on that one. But between the two of them, hundreds of times. And Paul, of course, though, he he may win this in the end because his trump card is that he wrote the chapter. He could say to John, oh yeah, did you write the chapter called the uh, love chapter? 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And so you can turn just anywhere in the New Testament and very quickly find 
expositions and, and teaching on love. But these glorious hundreds of New Testament passages on love find their concrete foundation, find their ethical basis right here in Leviticus 19. In fact, Leviticus 19 has said to be the greatest explanation of the ethics of love in all of the Old Testament. These are laws which, as New Covenant believers, we're not bound by these laws. Some of them, in fact, are national laws which pertain to functioning legally as a nation. But the whole chapter is foundational for the undying eternal principles which are based in the very character of God himself. In fact, this chapter is is absolutely bursting at the seams with the character of God. Verse 2, I, the Lord your God, am holy. Verse 3, I am the Lord your God. Verse 4, I am the Lord your God. Verse 10, I am the Lord your God. Verse 12, I am the Lord. Verse 14, I am the Lord. Verse 16, I am the Lord. And I won't keep going because there's 16 times in just these 37 verses, God calls attention to himself, his character as the basis for these commands. Each of these exclamations of God's character ends a paragraph Now, if holiness is the theme of Leviticus, which it is, then love is how holiness is demonstrated in relation to one another. There is not a a disconnect somehow between loving God and loving mankind, loving one another. The the two are, are inextricably bound together. Now, trying to follow along through this chapter, it's very proverbial in nature, meaning it's somewhat like the book of Proverbs in that it's, it's difficult to outline, it's difficult to organize. There's so many different topics, and they're covered in such a way that it, it makes you grind your way slowly through this chapter. It slows you down to stop and chew on and contemplate each topic, each thought, which I think is pro- probably part of the point of organizing the text this way. But very broadly, we could organize the chapter into four sections based on the 16 paragraphs of four parts with four paragraphs each, each paragraph ending with some sort of exclamation, I am the Lord your God. And so that gives us a a broad outline. And so what we'll do is assign some kind of large labels to each of these parts. And we're going to call these the principles of love. So the first principle of love that we'll begin with covers the first 10 verses. And we'll just call this one, Personal holiness is the expression of love for God. Personal holiness is the expression of love for God. And we find this one in the first 10 verses or so. And we'll just walk through it and let it unfold as it goes. Verses 1 and 2, to help us with this principle, that personal holiness is the expression of love for God. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This serves to introduce to us the goal of all the commands that we're to follow, and that is to be holy because God is holy. And this holiness manifests itself in obedience and in love. It's not some sort of esoteric attitude. It's not some sort of um, feeling. It is obedience. It is love and Obviously, we remember that Peter carries this principle forward into the New Covenant. In 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 15, But he who called you, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, guess where he quotes, right here, You shall be holy, for I am holy. 
And then God starts them at the basics of holy, loving obedience. The, the, the really the foundational parts. He starts at home and he starts in an ordered life of worship. Verse 3. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. And you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Revere your father and mother, he tells them. This is the same word used elsewhere to speak of fearing God. Parents are placed very much in the, in the place of God in the child's life. They're to be revered and respected as such. And this is important to the Lord. Uh, the book of Proverbs alone gives evidence of how much attention God places on this idea. Proverbs 1 verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. In other words, don't move on from your parents' wisdom. You, you're not going to outgrow wisdom. Again, he says in Proverbs 6.20, the, the, the writer of Proverbs, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. In Proverbs 10, verse 1, A wise son makes his father glad, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. In other words, part of the duty of children is to bring joy to their parents by obedience and respect. You may have heard it taught, well, you shouldn't make your children feel guilty for making you miserable. Actually, Proverbs says exactly the opposite. If your children are disobedient and making the home miserable, you're supposed to convict them of that sin and to say, we could have a happy home if you would be obedient. Proverbs 17, 25, a foolish son is a grief to his mother and bitterness to her who bore him. And listen to this one, Proverbs 23, 22 Gets rid of our cultural expectations that children know everything on their 18th birthday. Listen to your father who gave you life and listen to this. And do not despise your mother when she is old. Meaning your parents still have input and wisdom after you've grown. They're supposed to. Listen, by the time your kids all turn 18, you as parents, that's when you finally have some things figured out. And you have some things to offer. So the Bible clearly emphasizes this reverence of mother and father. Love for God and holiness begins with the basic building block of the home. It also begins with the basic building block of how you order your life. You shall keep my Sabbaths. Verse 3. The Sabbath was not only a sign of God's covenant with Israel. Exodus thirty-one thirteen tells us that it was the very basis. It was the foundation. It was the beginning point of their life of worship. It was, it was that which punctuated the life of the faithful. Out of love for God and out of a demonstration of trust in God, they were to cease working every seventh day. It, it was how they created a flow of life. And really, more than any other law that we could think of, the Sabbath defined what it meant to be a faithful follower of God. That was, if you were faithful, you were keeping Sabbaths. Interestingly, on two occasions in relatively modern history, an entire culture attempted to redefine the seven-day week into a ten-day week with nine days of work and one day of rest. This was during the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution. They both tried this, and it was abandoned. You want to know why? Because in an effort to create a so-called workers' paradise, the workers wore out, and they couldn't do it. So it's not sustainable. And for some reason, the atheists still can't explain, we organize ourselves around a seven-day week. Because that's how God made us. And we, as Christians, are to organize ourselves around the Lord's Day, that we stop to worship on the Lord's Day. 
Now, to reiterate covenant loyalty, God reminds them in verse 4, Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. And interestingly here, the word that, that God uses for idol is a favorite also in Isaiah. It's a, it's a diminutive word for God, meaning little weak gods or little pathetic gods. Uh, one translator translated this word godlings. Just these little bitty fake gods. And so he says, don't turn to them. Don't turn to those idols. They're, they're useless. They're weak. They're pathetic. They're powerless. And so things get started here with the basics. Love God in holiness by ordering your family around God's structure of respect and love. And love God in holiness by ordering your life around the worship of the one true God. By the way, just a little interesting side note. The Apostle Paul pairs up those same two concepts in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, 19 through 21 concerns the conduct of our regular, the content rather of our regular corporate worship together. And then in the very next verse, Ephesians 5, 22, it concerns how a Christian operates where? At home. You have worship in the home as the, the basics of loving God and holiness. Now, still under the heading that personal holiness is the expression of love for God, the whole next section basically gives one instruction about one offering, the, the peace offering that we read about in, and studied in Leviticus 7. Verse 5, when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after. And anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he is profaned what is holy to the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from his people. There's no explicit reason given here for singling out just the peace offering. But if you recall, the peace offering from Leviticus 7 had two important features. First of all, it was an offering to celebrate that peace with God has now been granted. It's been granted through repentance and through sacrifice. The peace offering was to be offered with a true and pure heart before the Lord, a, a genuine reality of faith, not just some external ritual. And so... First, the peace offering was a celebration that peace had been achieved with God. But second, you remember it was one of the rare offerings in which the worshiper also feasted on the meat of that sacrifice. And the instruction here is that the feast is not to go into the third day. It is at most a two-day feast. Now, there's no obvious reminder or no obvious reason here given rather for this reminder. But the structure gives us a big clue gives us a very big clue. Remember that every major section, 16 of them, ends with an exclamation that the Lord is God. That tells you that the section has ended. In the verse 8, there is no declaration. It means this section isn't done yet. And so if you have in your Bibles a, a bold print heading between verse 8 and 9, that was put there by the publisher, not by the Holy Spirit. There should be no gap there at all. There's a connection between verses 5 and 8, the command to offer the peace offering properly, and what comes next. Verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Now that section has ended. 
This is the law of sharing with the less fortunate. Traditionally, a farmer was to leave a minimum of one-sixtieth of his field unharvested so that the poor or the traveler could reap some benefit. And if you want to see how this works in, in reality, the book of Ruth gives us an example of an entire family living off of this principle of this gracious generosity. So what's the connection between keeping the peace offering properly and being generous with your neighbors, with the poor and with those traveling? I think the connection is pretty simple. Don't come to offer a peace offering to praise God for his mercy and grace if you are not willing to show mercy and grace to others yourself. Don't ignore the plight of others and then come thank God for his grace toward you. Now, that becomes very familiar to us, doesn't it? Because that principle is taught multiple times in the New Testament. For example, Jesus taught the same principle in Matthew 18 in the parable of the unforgiving servant. The servant who owed his master a large, unpayable sum and was forgiven the debt. And then refusing at that point to forgive a much smaller debt owed to him by another And you remember in the parable that when the master found out, he threw the servant in jail and demanded that he pay all of his debt, which was so high that it was unpayable. In other words, Jesus is teaching that true believers have mercy because they've been shown mercy. Or to put it the way John did, as we considered earlier, 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So Leviticus is about holiness, but it is expressed horizontally in love. The first principle of love, personal holiness, is the expression of love for God. Personal holiness is the expression of love for God. We could look at the second principle, and it fits in right where we left off. Genuine believers love God's people. Genuine believers love God's people. Now, this section describes a social context, beginning in verse 11, that's difficult for us to relate to, but I think we wish we could. As the church of Jesus Christ, we're aliens and strangers in a culture that is no respecter of God, no respecter of God's ways. But in Israel, the entire society was built around following God. And to put it in terms maybe we can understand, imagine if suddenly our entire county was made up only of believers in Christ. And every judge in every courthouse had a Bible open on his bench to help him determine how to render judgment. We live in a, in a society built around following God. It would be fabulous. But it would also mean that there's no longer any separation between offending men and offending God. That if you offend a man, you have offended God, and vice versa. Any offense or infraction against another was an affront to God. And so this section here deals with how citizens of God's chosen nation were to treat fellow members of the covenant community, and certainly there are extrapolations we can make for us as the church. It starts off with with the basics. Just be honest. Be honest. Verses 11 and 12, you shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Meaning, it's very simple, no stealing, no ripping one another off in business, no lying to one another. And if we were to 
try to push this forward into the church, it might be tempting to say, well, that would never happen in a church. Certainly, none of that would ever happen in our church. I would love to say it never happens, but all three of those things have happened in our church. Because we are sinners, it does happen. Lying, for example, it can come in very, very subtle forms. Lying can come in the form of excuses. It can come in the form of giving reasons for not following through on a commitment in order to avoid looking bad. If you have never, ever said, I didn't follow through on that commitment simply because I wasn't committed to do so, then you may have lied. You may have given excuses and given reasons. And so while we might say, well, I would never do that and nobody here would ever do that, experience would teach us otherwise and that we ought to watch ourselves. What about verse 12, though? You shall not swear by my name falsely. This is basically an admonition to keep your commitments, to keep your promises, to be one that says, because I'm a Christian, I want to have integrity and I want to do what I say I'm going to do. Don't say, this is putting it forward in our context, don't say, oh, I'm a follower of Christ, but be that flaky person that doesn't ever follow through on what you say. This is very, very practical for us. But there's an even more direct way that we might fall into swearing falsely by the Lord's name, and that is using God as an excuse for sin. I hear this on a regular basis as a pastor, not so much in our, in our own church, but I've heard it elsewhere in other contexts. Well, I've prayed about it, and I feel the Lord would have me to leave my wife. No, I don't think God's going to lead you to sin. Or, I've sensed God speaking to my heart too, and then you insert some sort of selfish, sinful action there, and you've boiled it down to just an emotion or a feeling, and you blame God for your sin and your selfishness. And so, loving God's people begins very basic here with just basic integrity. Just having basic integrity. And then we get a little bit more detailed. Loving God's people also means we don't take advantage of those weaker than ourselves. We don't take advantage of the weak. Verse 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. The employer was to have a heart of care and concern for his employees. And in a day labor culture, which Israel wasn't there yet, but when they arrived in the promised land, much of their economy would revolve around day labor. And in a day labor culture, a a worker needed his wages that night so he could buy food for his family. So when an employer said, I'll pay you tomorrow, that meant your family's going hungry tonight. And so it was cruel. It was was a terrible thing to do. And the lesson for us is obvious that if you're in the position to provide for others, that there is a a weighty responsibility to this. And in this case, especially when those who work for you are part of our covenant community, fellow believers in Christ, it is a difficult thing. And I've had this happen to me. It is a difficult thing to have a believer come and humbly say, what do I do? I work for a Christian and he is cheating me out of my wages. That's a hard thing to deal with. Our responsibility is to be gracious and caring and compassionate and generous. Listen, I've known a few men Not many, but I've known a few men who have never once in their lives had to depend on the integrity and kindness of an employer, but have either been handed money or never had a boss. And almost without exception, those men struggle with haughtiness and with arrogance because they never knew what it was like to be worried about their next meal. And so God gives this instruction to be kind and to be neighborly with those who work for you, to not take advantage of those on your payroll. 
And neither was the faithful Israelite to take advantage of the disabled. Verse 14, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Now, to curse the deaf here, this is just an example. It doesn't speak of being angry with them. It's a word which means in Hebrew to make light of something. It's the semantic opposite of the idea of the glory in, glory in the Old Testament. Glory in the Old Testament is to make something weighty, to make it important, to, to ascribe to it heaviness. This Hebrew word says to make something light, to make it unimportant. And to ascribe lightness to someone is to denigrate them as not mattering. Because you have this disability, you matter less than I do. You have no worth or value. And of course, the cruelty of intentionally tripping up a blind person illustrates that in the heart of the unbeliever, he sees himself as above and therefore not a true believer. But by treating those less physically or mentally able as you with love and kindness, what are you doing? Verse 14, you're fearing God. It's a form of fearing God. Still under the category of loving God's people, justice was to be preserved. Verses 15 and 16, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Now, this is, this is difficult for us to understand, so let me try to bridge some context here for you. In our culture, the judicial system is completely separated from society. Judges are in a class by themselves. They, they, you don't know where they live. You can't get in contact with them. And lawyers live in gated communities and you're not interacting with them, generally speaking. You don't interact with judges or lawyers or anybody in the legal system unless you're in it. And then once you're out of it, you're, you're out of it. But in ancient Israel, the elders of the towns were the judges and any citizen could be part of a jury. And these were all people that you lived with you worshipped with, you traded with, you did business with. And so it was incumbent upon you if you were called upon to be a judge in a case to be fair. Because that guy that you're coming into judgment with or against might be your next door neighbor. And some of your cattle might just die the next day if you did something wrong. And so God is imploring them, be neighborly, be gracious, be kind. There's to be no favoritism. And notice he says, don't be partial to the poor, meaning don't be a flaming liberal, or don't defer to the great, meaning don't be such a radical capitalist that you only give favors to the rich. Listen, do we see those same admonitions in the New Testament? Absolutely. The book of James, don't show favoritism at all. Now, we don't have a judicial system in our covenant community except the elders of a local church who act to provide judgment in certain cases of unrepentant sin as we're called to do in the New Testament. But the principle of verse 16, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, is obviously present in the church. To be a gossip, to be a slanderer, is to essentially set yourself up as an unrighteous judge of another person, you've deemed them worthy of your punishment by inflicting harm on their reputation. And someone might say, oh, I, I didn't mean anything by it. I was just sharing. 
But if the person about whom you're sharing is not there to give the other side of the story, what is that? That's, that's gossip. And I have seen and I have, I have watched as people become angry at a situation or at a person and they actually have no first-hand knowledge of that situation or that person. And it impacts how they view somebody else. That's a wicked thing to do. It is absolutely wicked to impact somebody else's view of another by what we say. If you cast somebody in a negative light, you're slandering them. If you're even just sharing something that perhaps didn't want to be shared, that's gossip. What does Jesus say in Matthew 18? If you have a problem with someone, go to that person. And otherwise, what do you do then? You let the principle of love rule, that love covers a multitude of sins. Could I, could I put this in the idea of love covering the multitude of sins in a form we can understand? It means love keeps its mouth shut. Love keeps its mouth shut. How are we to deal, though, in love with our fellow believers in the covenant community? Well, we're given the positive side here. Verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. See also Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go to him. This is an act of love. Verse 18 here, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but here it is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. There's no secret about this. This is exactly what the New Testament teaches. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in what? In love that a loving body of believers is speaking the truth to one another. You are speaking into each other's lives at a higher level, at, a, at an uncomfortable level, at a difficult level, and yet it is an act of love. The, the hating unbeliever has the habit of going to others about your problems. The loving believer has a habit of coming to you to help you with your problems. It's a very simple difference. No one is allowed to nourish hatred for a fellow believer in God's household of faith. Yes, you may correct, but vengeance belongs to the Lord alone. Belongs to the Lord. An unrepentant, vengeful heart is a sure sign of a false believer because they don't care about the sovereign judgment of God. They care about taking punishment into their own hands. So what's the standard? What's the sign of a loving believer? Well, it's a high standard. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the genius of this is that you literally don't need to say anything else because every one of you have one thing in common. You want to be loved at the highest level possible. Every one of you desire that, and you could define it. If I asked you, could you write a paragraph about how to love others? You might be able to do that. If I asked you, could you write a book about how you would like to be loved? Absolutely. I can write that all day long. So think about others with the same grace that you wish they would think about you. It starts in the mind. It starts in what you even allow yourself to think. Speak to others with the same grace you wish they would speak to you. Speak of others with the same grace you wish they would speak of you. Act toward others with the same grace that you wish they would act toward you. It's not complicated 
It's brilliant. Genuine believers love God's people. Let me give you a third principle of love. Do not love the world. Do not love the world. Now, if you're thinking this sounds very New Testament-like, well, the Bible is consistent with itself. God's ethics have always been the same because they are based on his character, which has always been the same. But we are more familiar with the New Testament admonitions. 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But this concept of being distinct, being different, it's based in part on this next section right here. First, we see some commands to remain different, to remain distinct. Verse 19, You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Now, we actually examined this verse in detail 33 sermons ago, so I'm sure it's fresh in your mind right now. But just in case it's not, this law is in the category of what we would call symbolic law because there's nothing inherently evil about these practices. There's nothing inherently wrong with with breathing animals a certain way or sowing your field with two kinds of seed or wearing a garment made made of two kinds of material. And we're glad for that because we're all wearing garments made of multiple types of material, right? So there's nothing inherently evil about these practices. But the law served as an everyday reminder, a symbolic reminder of an illustration of purity and holiness. Because what's the common thread in these three scenarios? Mixing cattle breeds, mixing seeds in one field, and mixing different types of cloth in one garment. The purpose of this law in Israel's context was to give them daily reminders to keep separate those things God has divided. And and this is a phenomenal idea because in this culture, they were around livestock every day. They were around the fields every day and they were mixing or they they were wearing clothing every day. And so you couldn't get away from this reminder that we are separate, we are distinct. And for us, the world will absolutely do anything to erase the distinctions of holiness by which God has set apart his people The world tries to influence how you worship. The world tries to influence how you interpret the Bible. The world tries to influence how you dress. The world tries to influence how you speak. I have had to, and am willing to do it again, send women home from church because they dress more like the world than what Paul says to be modest. Because we're so influenced. I have had to ask someone to reevaluate why they're angry at a sermon because they're interpreting a sermon or the text of Scripture based on something they heard on CNN or based on a social construct that is now popular. And say, no, we don't let the culture dictate to us how we interpret Scripture. The culture wants to erase distinctions. The culture wants to swallow the church within itself. The culture wants to make the church do its bidding. Great question to ask ourselves, how are you distinct from the world? Or put it this way, how does the unbeliever know that you're different? How would they know? What do you say no to in your life that everyone else says yes to? And in the spirit of remaining different and distinct, women, even the lowest in society, 
of women were to be guarded and treated with honor. Verse 20, if a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man and yet not ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free, but he shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. Now, keeping in mind that slavery in the ancient Near East didn't usually remotely resemble how we think of slavery. Slavery was a fact in every culture on earth. This is not an endorsement of slavery. This isn't a condemnation of slavery. It's simply how the Israelite was to deal with this reality. But the bottom line here, unique to Israel as opposed to any other culture, was that a woman who was a slave was not to be treated as an object. She was not to be treated as an object of pleasure. They were to be treated with love and care and compassion and mercy and respect. And in fact, if a man violated this, he had to sacrifice a ram. That's a small fortune. He pay the price. And still in the spirit of being different, of being distinct, God gives instructions concerning the produce of the land. Verse 23, When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year all its fruit shall be holy and offering the praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. Now, again, there's no obvious reason here given for this restriction. Generally speaking, it was common knowledge that the fourth year after planting a fruit tree was the year it was expected to really start producing. But beyond that, the simple reminder seems to be from the, from the Lord, this is not your land. This is my land, which I am graciously giving to you. You will treat it the way I tell you to. It was a powerful reminder that while the world says all that I can acquire is mine, the believer agrees with Psalm 24.1 that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. And so as part of not loving the world, they were to remain different. They were to remain distinct. They were to be set apart And also as part of not loving the world, they were to keep away from any pagan religious customs. Verse 26, you shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers that is seeking after the dead. Do not seek them out and so make yourself unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. So just a, 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 a bullet point list here of these restrictions on pagan religious, religious customs. Verse 26, no witchcraft. No unnatural curiosity about the future was permitted. Instead, they were to trust the sovereignty of God, the sovereign plan of God. Verses 27 and 28 have to do with the pagan customs when mourning the dead. The cutting of hair had some significance in pagan customs concerning the dead. The cutting of the body, the tattooing of the body was an act of giving blood to the dead and was considered disfiguring yourself contrary to how God created you. 
Verse 29, do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute. The implication here is that the father was not to sell his daughter into cultic pagan temple prostitution, which might be done for financial gain or more likely be done for gaining the favor of the false god to whom the girl was given. Instead, they were to keep on the narrow path of worship of Yahweh. Verse 30, keep my Sabbaths, reverence my sanctuary. And in verse 31, they were not to have an unnatural preoccupation with the dead. They were to trust the Lord who is the giver of life and the God who all who believe in him would, through whom he would live. They were to trust the Lord. Now, all of these warnings, 26 to 31, to keep away from religious pagan customs reflected a potential of lack of true faith in the Lord. And these, if you say, well, that's really old-fashioned, this is really what Leviticus is all about, all of those things are still being done today. Every one of them. And they infiltrate the church. Going back to verse 26. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. The world continues to be obsessed with knowing the future supernaturally. Has that made its way into the church? Absolutely. See also the charismatic movement. See also Pentecostalism. See also new apostolic reformation in which an obsession with prophecy for the future is the main attraction. We don't need that. All the future has already been revealed. All you have to do is open your Bible and read about it. We don't need any more. The world is obsessed with physical acts of serving the dead or keeping the memory of the dead alive. And certainly we, we understand that we want to keep the memory of, of our loved ones who have gone on before us alive. But this was to a level of, of distrust of the Lord. We're to entrust the dead to the sovereignty of God. Verse 29, do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute to to gain favor in some way. The world is preoccupied with sexuality as a means of gaining favor. Women wearing clothing not meant to be attractive, but to be an attraction. And there's a big difference. This has infiltrated the church drastically. And of course, the world naturally leans toward necromancy, the contacting of the dead. And you hear this all the time. I just know that Old Uncle Harry is watching over us. No, Uncle Harry is not watching over us. He has no properties of deity whatsoever. And yet it's at funerals, even Christian funerals, that I consistently hear worldly platitudes which bear no resemblance to biblical truth at all. And it's founded really in in ancient pagan ideas. We're not to love the world. We're to be distinct We're to search the scriptures for the type of men we're to be. We're to search the scriptures for the type of women we're to be. And what the Bible says is radically different than what our culture is trying to shove down our throats every day. And so we are to not love the world. Well, one more principle of love love those who are in the world. We love those who are in the world. Israel was to be vigilant, to be separate in their distinctions from the world, but this didn't allow them to look down on or take advantage of anyone. And in fact, in this final section, we see exhortations for them to take care with the vulnerable who are in the world. Verse 32, 
You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Now, we should point out that that text right here, it doesn't specify whether the elderly person mentioned is part of the covenant community or not. Just generally speaking, the elderly deserve honor. It's very interesting that Scripture asserts that a loss of respect for the elderly is a sign that the society is about to collapse. Right before God will pour out His judgment on the southern kingdom of Judah for their covenant treachery, God tells what their society looks like or will look like. Prophetically, Isaiah 3 verse 5, the people will oppress one another, everyone is fellow and everyone is neighbor, and the youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. In other words, that means society is about to go. Another example, those who self-righteously want to place all health care in the control of the government, what do they always tell us? They say it will enable everyone to receive quality care, especially the elderly, constantly saying the elderly will receive quality care. You know what the reality is? There was a doctor in Great Britain just a few years ago and in, a, in a controversial move, a very prominent physician. He came forward and he said, basically, I can't keep this secret anymore. He gave away the secret that the doctors in the social health care system were under great pressure to free up beds and free up resources. And one of the ways they were to do this was to place elderly patients on what they called their care pathway. We call it hospice, in which the medical issues are no longer treated. And this physician came forward with case study after case study of treatable elderly patients who were simply placed in hospice care to die and have their ailments not treated. In the tens of thousands. What does that say about a society? That it's on the verge of collapse. And we've seen that in history. The believer in Christ is to lead the way in our respect and love and care for the elderly. How about our treatment of the non-believer? That's paramount to how we love God as well. Verse 33. When the stranger sojourns with you in your land... You shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. By the way, those are two great verses. If you are, if you are a part of caring for our guests at Grace Bible Church, those are, it's a great principle. Treat them as you would want to be treated because you used to be on the outside. You used to be unsaved. You used to not be part of the church. What a great admonition for us. What a fabulous way to demonstrate the changed nature of a true follower of God to love anyone with kindness and decency and thoughtfulness. This is the practical application of genuine faith that Jesus gave us in Matthew 5.16. He said, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now let's break this down. What does it mean that when an unbeliever sees your good works and gives glory to God? Very simply, they see you as somebody who has been changed, who is different, and they know this. Can I put it this way? We are not to be like the unbeliever, but we are to be likable to the unbeliever. You don't have to sacrifice one for the other. And with one another and those in the world, we're to be honest 
Again, we come back around to honesty. Verse 35, you shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. Those are, those are units of measurement. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You notice the reason here. You prosperous businessmen whom I have prospered, don't forget where you came from. I brought you out of slavery. And so quit cheating people. Honesty in business in a day long before detailed government regulation was the very simplest of all regulations. Deal honestly because the Lord is your God. That's your motivation. And then God closes with just that reminder. In verse 37, And you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. These are pretty basic These principles, and you're familiar with them because you've read your New Testament. Personal holiness is the expression of love for God. Genuine believers love God's people. Do not love the world. Love those who are in the world. Do you see that the ethics of God are consistent because the character of God is consistent? It's the same all the way around. By the way, all these admonitions around love and holiness aren't random. They're a practical working out of the official covenant of God with Israel, the Ten Commandments. If you simply did a comparison of Exodus 20 where the Ten Commandments are listed and Leviticus 19, you can do it like a matching exercise. You can draw a line from one to the other, one to the other. It's just the day-to-day application of the Ten Commandments. I think it's very clear that the core, the hub of our obedience to the Lord is centered in love. Either love for God or love for others. If I can put it this way, if you're struggling with the question, How do I know God's will? Well, here's one thing I can tell you. If you conscientiously make efforts at love, especially with the less easy to love, then you are very safely in the center of God's will. You're very safely where he would have you to be when it comes to personal holiness. Our Grace Bible Church membership covenant is essentially based completely on Romans chapter 12 beginning of verse 9, and the entire text of Romans 12 is actually found in our hymnals as a responsive reading. Before we sing a final song, I want to have you take your hymnal and turn to number 351. We're going to read this responsively, but I want you to read it with the eyes of a Bible student. Because as you read this, see if it doesn't sound like Leviticus 19. I think you'll be amazed. We will read this responsively, then I will close in prayer, and then Darren will lead us in a song. I will read the light print, and you follow along and read with the bold print. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say that everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Let's read together. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. 
if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And shortly after Romans chapter 12 and Romans 13, you know what Paul quotes? Love your neighbor as yourself. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the consistency and the clarity of the Word of God that 3,500 years ago, the ethic of the true saved believer in Yahweh was to love your neighbor as yourself. And the ethic of the, the Christian saved by faith in Christ with the revealed, completed revelation of the Savior, the ethic is the same, to love one another, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Lord, I pray that that would be a characteristic, a hallmark of this body of believers, that we would love one another, that we would cherish only good in our hearts toward each other, that we would be forgiving, that the law of love would prevail, that love covers a multitude of sins, and and that we would work on our relationships and work on loving each other such that our thoughts are purified. And as the Apostle Paul said to the church at Philippi that he thanked God for all of his memories, all of his thoughts toward them. That he thought only the good. And I pray, Lord, that that would be what characterizes our lives as those having been transformed by the power of Christ. And we pray in his name and for his glory. Amen.